and you may be seated. Now the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, Why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? And then Peter began to explain it to them step by step, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. There was something like a large sheet coming down from heaven, being lowered by its four corners, and it came close to me. As I looked at it closely, I saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, reptiles, and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I replied, By no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a second time the voice answered from heaven, What God has made clean you must not call profane. And this happened three times. Then everything was pulled up again to heaven. At that very moment, three men sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were. And the Spirit told me to go with them and not to make a distinction between them and us. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will give you a message by which you and your entire household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it had upon us at the beginning. And now I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? And when they heard this, they were silenced. And they praised God, saying, Then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So for their 50th wedding anniversary, John and Anne, their children, threw them a big party. It was great. It was like everybody was there that they knew. Tons of folks. And Anne, not being the one to speak in public, uh, nudged John. And so he got up to say a few words at the microphone with Anne standing there beside him. And John thanked everyone. Thank you for being here. He reminisced about great times, trips they'd taken, ups and downs along the way, and he expressed to Anne his continued love. And as he wrapped up, he said this, After 50 years of marriage, I am proud to say that we have never disagreed about anything. And then Anne grabbed the microphone right from him, and he, she said, Oh, yes, we have. So either, either they're about to have their first disagreement, or they're about to have 50 years worth of disagreements all at the same time. I've said it before, and I will say it again. Disagreements are not bad. 
Disagreements are not bad. In fact, disagreements can actually be good. When we disagree with people, it offers us a chance to negotiate the common ground of our relationship so that we can grow closer. Too often, there's a single disagreement and people cut one another off from things. But I'll go as far as to say this. People who have never disagreed won't be able to experience the true level of closeness that they desire. Good relationships are not based on, well, we have never disagreed or we have never had a fight. Instead, the strength and health of that relationship is often defined on how people handle a disagreement. You see, a healthy disagreement can bring people together. It really can. You can find new common ground, new empathy for one another. You can let go of some pride and open up some humility and honor other people. A healthy disagreement can actually bring people together. But an unhealthy disagreement can polarize and hurt and destroy relationships. I know I've, I've experienced a few of those. I wonder if, if you have as well. We live in a world that's paralyzed by unhealthy disagreements. People don't know how to disagree anymore. People don't know what to do when they uh, come up against a view that is not of their own. And so in some kind of um, reptilian uh, instinct, people gang up, or they double down, or they overpower, or they might even simply keep it all that tension inside until it erodes away at their sense of who they are. And all of that is sad. And what's even more sad than that is when Christian people demonstrate the same unhealthy patterns. What does it say to the world that the people who have been given the gift of life can't even handle a disagreement with somebody or amongst themselves? But it doesn't have to be that way. I want you to think of it this way. The church has so much to offer the world. And one of the things that we can offer is to demonstrate to a watching society a different way of handling our disagreements. One that draws us closer to others and closer to God instead of tearing us apart inside and out and dividing us every which way. And so here in our reading from Acts, we see a demonstration of a model of redemptive disagreement. Through their disagreement here in the text, the early church not only strengthened their relationships with each other, but they ultimately all drew closer to God and discovered a new direction for their lives together. And so today I want to explore that. Today I actually want to give you five principles from this text of a healthy disagreement. Five principles for healthy disagreement. But now listen, before we do that, I think I owe you a bit of background to help make sense of why this was even a problem to begin with. You see, the issue is, why did you eat with those folks? Doesn't seem like a big deal, does it? I mean, there are even whole restaurants that are based on communal dining. Uh, one of uh, Amanda's favorites, uh, anytime you ask her where she wants to go out to eat, she wants Japanese hibachi chicken, always, always. And in half of the restaurants that we love that serve Japanese hibachi chicken, they set you around on a big communal table with whoever's there, and they bring the chef out, they cook it in front of you. Eating with people doesn't seem to be a problem for us, so 
let's get a little bit of background before we jump into these principles. So this disagreement is not about whether the Gentiles, those are the non-Jewish people, it's not about whether the Gentiles can be saved. That's not the issue. We've actually already seen that. The disagreement is the challenge of being in fellowship with people that Jewish Christians aren't used to being around. That's what the challenge is. So track it back a little. The first Christians were practicing Jewish people. They then professed their faith in Jesus. And for them, it wasn't a break from their Judaism to start something new. It was actually a natural extension of their Jewish faith. And so they followed Jesus while retaining their Jewish identity and all of the religious customs that went with it. It's not like if somebody uh, converts from Wiccan uh, and witchcraft to become a Christian where they leave behind their whole faith. They were, they were following the Messiah promised in Christ. So it was a natural extension. And so part of that custom, at the heart of the custom that they held on to was the concept of religious purity or ritual cleanliness. This is the whole reason uh, that there are food laws and uh, circumcision and even sacrifices to help people remain clean religiously. It's in fact the reason that Jewish people were very wary about eating in Gentile homes. Because if you're only allowed to eat certain things to remain pure and you go into somebody's house and they don't know what that is, then you might end up being served unauthorized food. And if food had to be prepared in a certain way to be clean, you never know if your food was prepared in a clean way or if you are coming in contact with something that wasn't clean. So Jewish people were, were uh, wary of eating with Gentiles. Purity is the primary concern. But now as we explore the, how it works in this disagreement, we need to remember the main goal of ritual purity in the law. Now, if you look back in the book of Leviticus early on, it's your favorite book. I know it is. You read it every night before bed. Um, if you read the book of Leviticus, it, it will sound to you like the goal of the law was to follow all the rules so that God will like you. That's what it sounds like. But that completely misses the point. The law was actually a gift from God. It was the first pathway for people to live and be in the presence of an all-holy and righteous God. You see, God's holiness is so pervasive that if prior to this, if anybody entered into the presence of God, they simply died in awe. So the law is this gracious gift. God says, I want you to be with me, and so here are the ways in which you can remain clean so that you are not completely destroyed by my holiness. And so it's a pathway to be with God. And the law was not about rules and rewards, but about God initiating a welcoming pathway into his holy presence. And so this is the pattern that the people of, of the Jewish faith lived with all the way up to this point. But now Jesus Christ became the final sacrifice. Jesus Christ who himself said, I have come to fulfill the law, has changed things for believers. You see, in the resurrection age, after Christ has risen and ascended, people are welcomed into God's presence, not by their own ability to remain pure, but by virtue of Christ's complete purity. That's why the veil was torn. That's why Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law. And so, 
Even for a Jewish Christian, it is no longer necessary to pursue religious purity through the law. Now you can imagine that that is a really hard transition for people who have lived under the law for generations. It's just a completely difficult. All of a sudden, I say to you, you can eat no meat. Oh, that's going to be a little difficult, right? All of a sudden, I say you can do this thing you were never allowed to do. Old habits die hard, or at least Bruce Willis tells us it's so. And so the church is struggling with this. So this disagreement is not about salvation. It's about confusion. Do we still have to follow purity laws to be in good standing with God, or does Jesus take care of all of that for us? And this is the disagreement. So when word comes down to Jerusalem that Peter on his trip up north had eaten a meal with Gentiles, he has done something that's been taboo for generations. Not because God doesn't like them, but because of that concept of religious purity. So let's keep that background in mind about what this disagreement is all about and briefly explore five healthy ways that Peter and the early church engaged in their disagreement. And so we'll start with number one. Go to the source and assume good faith. Take a look at verses one and two if you have your Bibles with you. So some folks, this always happens, somebody heard about Peter's ministry and how he ate with Cornelius up north in Joppa. They heard about it. They know nothing about it. And they make a lot of assumptions. And boy, oh boy, there is nothing that you want to do when you've got a juicy tidbit of information than spread it around to everybody else. My goodness, folks, you'll never guess what Peter did in Joppa. It's juicy gossip. And it spreads all throughout the region. Now, a good definition of gossip, and you might note this down, is talking about something or somebody with someone who is neither a part of the problem or the solution. And if you read the book of James, you remember that the tongue is like a flame and can set the whole forest on fire. Well, when the church in Jerusalem gets wind of this rumor, we actually see them take the mature route. Instead of assuming everything they hear is correct and just spreading it all around town, what do they do? They go straight to the source, Peter himself. That's what the second verse of the passage tells us. When Peter came into Jerusalem, they sat him down. Jesus instructs us the same way in Matthew 18. It's something we really all need to remember. Uh, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, first go to your brother. Not first go spread it around town. Not first make a bunch of assumptions about what has happened, but first go to your brother. So the early church goes straight to the source. Now, the Bible says they criticized him, but they do it by asking a question of him instead of making an allegation. They say, tell us why you did this. They assumed that there was a good reason for it. They assumed that Peter uh, was a good person and had a good explanation, and they gave him a chance to offer it before they condemned him with a judgment of their own without his ability to do it. So they assumed Peter's good faith and gave him a chance to speak to them. And so, do you want to handle disagreements in a healthy way? One way to do that is go to the source and assume good faith. Do you know how many issues in churches, in families, in communities can immediately be taken care of if people would just talk to the people they have an issue with? 
And if they would just assume that there is good faith in whatever the person has done, a majority of the issues that people face would be taken care of at that moment. Have the courage to go to the source and assume good faith. Number two, take your stand, but don't step on people. Take your stand, but don't step on people. Have any of you ever been confronted about something? I mean, y'all are perfect, so maybe back when you were a kid and you didn't clean your room and your mom said, hey, if you've been confronted, you probably recognize that defensive feeling that wells up. And a natural reaction, I felt it, I'm sure you felt it too, is to go on the counterattack. Happens in uh, marriages all the time. What, you're mad that I didn't do the dishes? Well, you never la-da-da-da-da-da-da. But look at how Peter responds in his speech. Peter doesn't go on the counterattack. In fact, the only person that Peter speaks about is his, himself and his own experiences and understandings. And also an important note, Peter doesn't just back down when confronted, like we do sometimes. Somebody will call you out on something and say, I don't want any part of that, just forget it, we've got it. Peter instead had a strongly held conviction on that matter, and he had good reasoning for what he believes and what he did. So Peter stands up for himself. And I would encourage people to do that, to allow uh, the opinions that they have, the reason that they have, to, be, to think of yourself well enough to say that I am worth speaking to this. But Peter takes his stand, but doesn't step all over the other people. Standing up for yourself does not mean tearing everybody else down. Standing up for yourself does not mean destroying the person that you have a disagreement with. It simply means asserting yourself and making yourself known. If you look at Peter's speech, you could make this an exercise uh, for about 16 or 15 of these verses. I want you to circle every time that Peter refers to himself and every time he refers to his accusers. What you will find is about eight to 10 references to himself and a ton of implied references to his own thinking and experience. You will find zero of Peter referring to his accusers. So Peter, he doesn't once criticize other people for their position. He speaks for himself, he speaks to his own experience, he speaks to his own thinking and his own action. He doesn't go on the attack, he doesn't assume that he knows what they're thinking. He speaks for himself. And you can see that just by looking at how many times he refers to himself in this. And even at the end, have you ever had like um, an, an argument where you just have the perfect line? You're going to end on this perfect line and it's going to be the zinger and it's going to make everybody go, oh, you are right. Peter has a great line at the end. It says, who was I that I could hinder God? That's dramatic. But Peter speaks for himself even there. Even when he's pushing his point home, he doesn't say, why are you hindering God? He speaks for himself. And so Peter takes a stand, but he does so while respecting the positions of other people. Take your stand, but don't step on other people. Number three, speak to be heard and understood. Speak to be heard and understood. It might not be news to some of you all. I, my undergraduate degree is in theater and education, so I spent a good portion of my life on the stage, working with the stage and all of this. My old theater teacher used to say uh, to us when we were preparing for scenes, 
He said there are only two reasons people speak, to be heard and to be understood. Now, he often said that because we had mush mouth. I'm like, I don't get any words out of our mouth. But to be heard and to be understood. Y'all, in tense times, there are so many things we want to communicate. Just imagine like a disagreement or an argument you've had in the uh, I, don't, I don't know how you experience it physically. For me, I get like a tight chest and flushed. And you can tell if my ears are red, I'm doing a horrible job containing my feelings. But do you understand that? And there, there are times when all you want to do is communicate what you're feeling. And sometimes that comes out in anger or rage or sadness or even just pure silence. But if we're not thoughtful, we can get caught up in all of that. We can give in to the urge to to dump that on other people. And you know what happens then? They can't hear what we actually want to say. They can't hear what we want to say. If you have trouble visualizing that, I just want you to think about talking to a child. It doesn't even have to be a really young child, but talking to a child. If an adult comes to them angry about they didn't eat their green beans, and you come out angry and you say, don't eat your green beans, do you know what that child's going to hear? Grown-up is so mad at me and I don't know what to do about it. They're not going to hear anything about their green beans. So we have to be thoughtful in these times when we, when we are having disagreement so that we communicate what we want to say, so that we're speaking to be heard and understood. In verse 4, it says this, Peter began to explain himself step by step. We have no idea how Peter's feeling, but we know that he puts in the effort to thoughtfully make sure that his audience hears him and understands him. It's extremely important that our words and even our demeanor communicate what we really want to communicate, that we respond instead of react, that we think through what we say instead of dumping it out on people. So be thoughtful with your words and with your demeanor so that you can truly be heard and understood. A lot of that is on us. A lot of that is on us. So speak to be heard and understood. Number four, listen. Really listen. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody and you absolutely knew that it was going in one year and out the other because they were thinking about something else or thinking about what they wanted to say to you? You might as well just sit back and say, go ahead, get it all out, because you're not going to listen until you say what you got to say. But and listening is a powerful part of our relationships. After Peter makes his case, in verse uh, I believe 18, the Bible says, after they heard this, they were silenced. And so that could just be the force of Peter's argument, but even if it is, it appears that they did more than let it go in one ear and out the other. They considered what Peter said. They heard what Peter said, and they let it impact them. They listened. Even when we listen, it doesn't mean that we have to change our mind, but in this case, that's what it led to. Listening is a powerful thing. Listening is powerful. Now, uh, ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle once said something that I think resonates with uh, the Christian idea of personhood. He said that there are two desires in life, to know and to be known. People want to be heard. 
Listening is more than just waiting your turn to speak. Listening is a sign of honor and respect. Even if I disagree with you, I honor you. Even if I don't like what you're saying, at the very bare minimum, you were created by God, and so I'm going to honor that. It's also an act of humility. It communicates that I, though I believe in what I am saying, am willing to hear what you have to say, take it in, and let it interact with my position, not just let it bounce off of me. It communicates a lot. And when we listen, when we really listen, we can actually diffuse a lot of the emotional energy of a disagreement. When people know they're being heard, they don't have to be so forceful. They don't have to use so much energy to get their point across because they know that you are listening. Have you ever talked to somebody and you truly felt like they were hearing you? We seek those people out. They tend to be peaceful people. And so when we really listen, we can honor people, diffuse some of that emotional energy, and we might even, I know, we might even learn something. So listen, really listen. And number five, seek righteousness, not rightness. Seek righteousness, not rightness. You see, the outcome of this disagreement in the scripture, it actually draws the whole church closer to God. It changes the way the whole church approaches ministry. And this couldn't have happened if either side was focused on winning the, uh, the argument by beating the other. Instead, at least by the end, both parties were seeking to follow God with conviction. You see, when they sought righteousness, they were able to let go of the need to be right. Because you can win an argument. You can read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. You can read all of the uh, conflict management books you want. You can be persuasive. You can win an argument all you want, and you can be right. But being right does not mean you are righteous. And honestly, sometimes you have to choose, do I want to be right or do I want to be in this relationship? So righteousness instead, if we seek righteousness, we will always be winners. Because if we are seeking God, we don't necessarily have to worry about being swayed or swaying the others to our, our opinions. When we seek righteousness, our eyes are on God, not on winning or losing. Our eyes are on God instead of you are my punching bag to overcome or you are the one I have to defeat. It changes the way we interact with each other. It changes the way we view other people. And it puts the focus on God instead of ourselves. And in the end, if we seek righteousness over rightness, we'll end up better people. Seek righteousness over rightness, we might, we might end up even hearing something from God in the process, even in a disagreement. The church, ultimately, through whatever, got through whatever emotional turmoil they were dealing with, and together, the church and Peter, all together, found God in their disagreement. They sought righteousness and not rightness. So these are five principles of healthy disagreement that we see happening here in the text, which is good to know because we are going to have disagreements. 
It's just going to happen. There's not a relationship that is, quote, so perfect that they will never disagree. And if there is a friendship or a relationship that never disagrees, then they are further apart from one another than you would think that they are. A disagreement's not a bad thing. In fact, it can be a very good thing because our disagreements strengthen our relationships and help us hear God speaking. So what matters most is how we handle our disagreements. Use these five principles to engage in healthy disagreement. It's good for you, and it will also be a powerful witness to a world that doesn't know how to handle disagreements. It will be a powerful witness to the world that hasn't learned a healthy way to disagree with others. I pray that we will be witnesses to God even when we disagree. Will you pray with me? I invite you now on behalf of the Lord and on behalf of the church that if you have felt the Spirit of God working in your life, you feel called to give your life to Jesus, to become a Christian, to confess your faith, I invite you to do that. God has opened the doors uh, to all people. And who are we that we can hinder God? But that invitation is yours. Come and accept the Lord. We'll walk you through and celebrate with you. If you need to make a new commitment, maybe a disagreement that you've had has taken you off the track, and you want to recommit your life to Jesus Christ and handle these things in a healthy way. Today could be the day you start again. Come as we sing our hymn of invitation. Share that with us. Let us guide you and celebrate with you. And if you want to become a member of our church, you can join our church by professing your faith, reaffirming your faith, or transferring your membership to the church you may no longer attend. We would love to be your church family. Wouldn't we ever know? And if you just need to pray, the altar is open for you. You can come and accept any of these invitations as you will as we stand and sing the five closing hymn. Go and make of all disciples for the 571.